Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, girlies. While you're listening, check out the podcast on Instagram at Queer Serial to put faces to the names and see some of the real events covered in every episode. Also, this podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show has identifying terms that may now be out of date. Am I under arrest? Betty, you're a religious woman, aren't you? We need to make a health inspection. Officer, I thought we had a deal. Nancy! Nancy May, you can't take that woman. We'll uphold God's laws if you won't. Am I under arrest?
You can't take that woman. One year earlier. October 31st, 1963. Last night, the Alcohol Beverage Control Board finally took the Black Cat Cafe's liquor license. After 15 years of owner Saul Stuman fighting and $38,000 of legal debt, he decides to finally let the license go. Jose Saria tried to get other gay bar owners to chip in to pay the legal bills, but it didn't work. Stuman's fight is the end of a long battle to keep the cat alive since its beginning in 1906 in the basement of a Tenderloin hotel. Tonight, on Halloween of 63, the Black Cat's annual party is alcohol-free. They'll attempt to run this way on food and soft drinks until February, when the Black Cat Cafe closes for good. In response, the Tavern Guild launches a new fundraiser for their organization in order to support their alliance of gay bars and protect each other from further harassment. The fundraiser is a drag ball, of course, the Beaux-Arts Ball. Like their picnics and Monday night auctions at various bars, their drag ball starts bringing in the bucks. And when politicians get invitations to these large events with big money and several voters, it's hard for them to resist paying attention to that community. People running for office begin to appear at these gay events. The Tavern Guild even raises enough money to send two ministers to Selma during Freedom Summer. And soon, their Beaux-Arts Ball will be a new home for Jose Saria. Fighting to save the bars in court is one of many tactics in the movement for queer liberation. They're fighting for new rulings and to change the laws. It's a very slow and often unrewarding process. Some activists and readers of the Homophile magazine say that's not the way to liberation. Convincing doctors to deem us healthy is the next step toward liberation. Then convince the courts to like us. Others say, no, not doctors. We need ministers to destigmatize us first, then the doctors, then the courts. But don't picket for any of this. And don't do a sit-in. Oh, and don't cross genders with your clothes. But don't be too quiet. But don't be too loud. And certainly, don't be too openly proud of your condition. New activists joining the movement want to participate, but what's the point of fighting for liberation if it has all these rules and caveats? That's not liberation. That's assimilation into a world that doesn't want us to exist. The younger activists, in particular, want nothing to do with the self-imposed rules. They want the freedom that has long been promised. And most of them have nothing to lose. Pants are proper. The running debate among top fashion designers on both sides of the Atlantic has at last subsided. With help from Harper's, Vogue, and the New York Times, the eyes have it. This season, you can wear pants absolutely anywhere, which means dandy pants for town and fancy pants for evening. You can choose from knickers, breeches, jumpsuits, pantsuits, pant shifts, etc. Combined with champion swimmer hairdos sleeked back behind your ears at a cropped coat. An Inside Contact reports that fashion artists are being told to draw their panted women to look like lesbians. But who can be sure what that means? Things are changing quickly at the Daughters of Belitis. 
National DOB President Jay Bell suddenly resigns, and Cleo Bonner takes her place as acting president, then earns the seat and holds it until 1966. Cleo is a tall, elegant woman who served as circulation manager for the Daughters magazine, the latter, while she was working at Pacific Bell. And Cleo Bonner is the first woman of color to head a national gay organization. The San Francisco chapter gets a new president, too. Also a woman of color, Pat Walker, a.k.a. Debbie. She's extremely popular among the daughters. She's also extremely busy in her work. Debbie runs a wake-up call service. She volunteers on the city's suicide prevention hotline, and she runs a snack bar outside a public office building in Berkeley. She's blind, but refuses to get a seeing-eye dog. When people ask why, she says they get all the credit. Dubby can tell who is approaching her by how their steps sound, and if anyone at her snack bar tries to steal from her, she chases them down and tackles them. Over on the East Coast, the Daughters of Belitis have just attended the first official conference for the East Coast Homophile Organization, ECHO. On Labor Day weekend in Philadelphia, the Mattachine Society of Washington, the Daughters of Belitis New York, the Mattachine Society of New York, and the Janus Society of Philadelphia all met to strategize an agreed, cohesive plan for their movement as the Eastern Alliance Echo. Confidential reporter attends first homosexual convention in U.S. history. Reporter Ken Travis wrote inaccurately, the first one was way back in 1953, season one, episode six. Respectability was the keynote. Everyone was conservatively dressed, the men mostly in Ivy League fashion, the women in dresses or suits. No bottling blonde men, limp wrists, or lisping here. Thank you. Their special guest speaker was psychologist Albert Ellis, who spoke of homosexuality as a sickness that makes them all psychopaths. Someone shouted from the audience, Any homosexual who would come to you for treatment would have to be a psychopath. <laughs> Barbara Giddings is there in the audience. After many years organizing the New York DOB chapter, Barbara is chosen as the new editor of their national magazine, The Ladder. Along with her lover of two years, Kay Lehusen, they begin to make some big changes. Fed up with the quiet discretion of their little magazine with the vague title, they add a subtitle to the cover, announcing that The Ladder is a lesbian review. I'm done worrying about who's bringing what to the covered dish supper. It's time for these activists to be bold. Previously. What's wrong with you, Mary? Enough of the raids. I'm tired of the raids, aren't you? We're fighting to save our license here, honey. The cops have told me, tell your black cat patrons they're watching. The League for Civil Education News, reporting tips like methods to avoid entrapment. How to spot a cop. The daughters are stopped by SFPD homosexual detail officers Rudy Nieto and Dick Castro to investigate if any women are wearing men's clothes. We must begin to quit imitating the heteros. We are able to see certain things that the straights can't possibly see. And it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. Looking through the mainstream psychology texts, a lesbian named Barbara finds that she's declared sick for the feelings she has. She demands better answers. Wow, all these lesbians together in one place. I've never seen anything like it. 
She's one of the only women in the organization using her legal name. You should be more careful, Barbara. Advised he was recently contacted by an individual named Randy, who claimed to be a leader of a homosexual group in New York City. It disgusts me. You've let society brainwash you. I spend my whole life in gay society. I have been president of this group since its formation on November 15th, 1961. Frankly, the Mattachine Society of Washington deserves the support of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as it is the government's job to protect its citizens. Why is Director Hoover so worried about being publicly associated with homosexuals? Those people don't even exist. They do exist! They are very real! And if you are insensitive to this, then there's no alternative except our going in the streets in chaos. We are all going to have to stand and be on the receiving end of a fire hose. Another woman has been arrested and thrown in jail because she refused to get up out of her seat on the bus for a white person to sit down. Negroes have rights too. When Rosa Parks sat down, a revolution broke forth. Rosa Parks! Organizer of District of Columbia March is devoted to nonviolence. You expect us to giddily go off to fight a war that's your war. That's unjust, unfair, and so dishonorable it should shame you. There are enough of us to win this fight. Homosexuals planning to picket the White House. The sources indicated that the purpose of the demonstration is to protest the United States government's discrimination against homosexuals in federal employment. No force under the sun can stop this civil rights revolution which is now underway. What do you say? United we stand, divided they catch us one by one. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from the beginning to Stonewall. The final 13 episodes. Look, I don't feel like I look like a big butch. I wear men's clothes because I'm too damn fat to buy women's clothes. Shirley Willer tells her new Belitis group. They don't make the kind of slacks that I like to wear in a 48-inch waist for women. They make them for men. They're cheap and they fit better. Shirley moved to New York from Chicago for her 40th birthday. She had a good time in Chicago, going to the annual Finney's Halloween Balls at the Aragon and Trianon Ballrooms, She would attend in a tux, and her gay friends would do her makeup. When it's not Halloween, though, tailored pants got her into trouble. On her first ever walk to a gay bar, a cop on Rush Street grabbed her by the shirt and beat her up, calling her a pervert. The discrimination in Chicago is worse than ever. When her gay friend Barney fell asleep smoking, the doctors in his hospital refused to take care of him as well as their other patients. Shirley can see all the neglect. She's a nurse. After begging, Shirley finally got him moved to a veteran's hospital, where he died the next day. Shirley got angry. She went to Pearl Hart, a Chicago attorney, a woman who wore Tweedy Brooks Brothers suits as she defended sex workers and entrapped gay men. Shirley asked Pearl how to start an organization to help homosexuals. You don't. It's too dangerous. So, she found a friend who was also a nurse, 
and they started taking in queer kids who needed housing. Sometimes they'd have three teens sleeping on their kitchen floor. They helped the kids find jobs and let them wear any clothes they like. When she heard about the DOB, Shirley wrote to Meredith Gray in New York and made the move to the East Coast to catch the next meeting. Shirley arrives at the address given to her by Meredith. It's an apartment with a loud dog inside. She knocks. A woman opens the door. What do you want? Well, there's going to be a meeting here tonight, isn't there? Oh my God, no, I forgot. She lets Shirley in, revealing a wrecked apartment. Dishes everywhere. Shirley helps her wash the dishes and clean up, just in time for Meredith Gray, a.k.a. Marion Glass, and a dozen other women to show up for the meeting. Soon after, Shirley Willer begins the search for a better meeting place. She finds a cheap office for the DOB. When they all enter the new space, they find a dried mess of blood all over the floor. It seems the last person to rent the office had a hemorrhage on the floor, and no one ever cleaned it up. The daughters come back with spatulas, get on their knees, and scrape up the mess together. Shirley helps the New York DOB thrive as their new chapter president. She works with Echo, and she and Marion become lovers, traveling the country to recruit women to start new DOB chapters in major cities. Shirley also brings on an anonymous donor to fund the DOB. The only thing Shirley will reveal about this donor is that she's a lesbian from one of the first ten families of the country. Dell and Phil nicknamed this donor Pennsylvania. Every month, Pennsylvania sends a $3,000 check, each time written out to a different daughter. Over the next five years, this Pennsylvania will donate a total of about $100,000 to the daughters, worth nearly a million dollars in 2021. Phyllis Lyon will meet her once, later describing her as a poised woman who fidgets and blushes when lesbianism is brought up. Pennsylvania barely makes eye contact. This woman also donates to Planned Parenthood, and she never takes credit for any of her philanthropy. Pennsylvania's true identity will remain, possibly forever, unknown. The money she provides to the DOB through Shirley Willer helps them get the latter printed in slick stock and sold on newsstands all over the country. Shirley will later tell historian Eric Marcus, We wanted to try to see if that would work, but people were afraid to buy it from newsstands. I, c I can't see why. It was the most boring thing I ever ran across. Cute little love stories of any kind, straight or gay, never did appeal to me. And that's what the latter was packed with. Lovers Barbara Giddings and Kay Lehusen would like to change that with more radical nonfiction writing under that new subtitle, A Lesbian Review, which is in an ever-growing font size. A Lesbian Review is steadily getting larger and larger on every cover until it matches the size of the title, the latter. And the caption at the bottom, for sale to adults only, gets smaller and smaller. Pennsylvania's money also helps the group to start two scholarships for women. And the group will soon be able to help out Frank Kameny when he's broke in D.C. After having recently appeared on a local radio show using his real name, Frank Kameny lost his new job offer to work as a geophysicist. Dear Charlie... While I will grant that the lavender buttons didn't look as bad as I'd expected, primarily because the lavender color isn't as apparent as I'd thought it would be, my basic reaction remains the same. Frank Kameny writes to Charles Hayden, a.k.a. Randy Wicker, about political buttons he asked Randy to make. Whether you like it or not, 
and perhaps more fundamental, whether it's rational or not, the prejudiced connotations in regard to lavender vis-a-vis -vis homosexuality and effeminacy do exist. You don't attempt, at least you don't if you hope to be successful, to overcome one prejudice by exacerbating another. In a good many instances where a plain black and white button might arouse some anger, which sometimes leads to constructive thought, or just some startled rethinking, the use of lavender will elicit a snickering, what can you expect of a bunch of pansies, and a reinforcement of old prejudices. The reaction may not be logical, but it'll be there nonetheless. They need to be made to feel at ease in accepting the new, for them, attitudes in question. They need to be made to feel that they aren't going too far out, socially at least. Lavender buttons will not give them the ease of mind, which will be conducive to a receptive attitude for the ideas which you want to promulgate. I won't belabor this point further. I think I've made my position clear. Randy Wicker responds. I am out of the movement for good. I canceled my book contract, sent them the money back, and filed the work I had done in a dusty drawer. I just couldn't get enthused or busy on a book concerning homosexuality. I am sick of the subject for present. Maybe after a few months or years of rest, the old concern, drive, vision, and flame will burn brightly once more. Right now, I have developed the feelings of fuck this stupid world and the people in it who think stupidly about something as basically simple as homosexuality. I have a life to live. I want to spend it learning and living with the enlightened, the informed, even the hippies. I don't want to spend agonizing hours in publishers' offices, magazine offices, pleading like dirty for the right to advertise or trying to rile them into giving something legitimate publicity. I just don't want to be bothered. I don't want to fight City Hall. I want to eat, sleep, fuck, and live. I also want to try writing, an idea I am pursuing at haste right now. A radio show for WBAI and an article on The Doctor and the Social Problem. Something's wrong somewhere. Again, must go. Give them hell in Washington. Write soon. See you soon. As always, Charlie. Charles Hayden, a.k.a. Randy Wicker, is out of the movement, for now. He sees that society's problem isn't just with homosexuality, it's with sex in general. And Randy refocuses his attention on sexual revolution by joining the League for Sexual Freedom. This group isn't scared to march and doesn't consider picketing too radical, like most of the homophiles do. The League for Sexual Freedom has marched against obscenity laws and for the legalization of sex work. As the sexual freedom group looks for new sexual causes to consider picketing for, Frank Kameny quietly advises them with a suggestion. Uh, I went to jail willingly and cheerfully. We feel that our movement here in 1963 was probably the greatest movement for freedom ever uh, held in America. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action. You may well ask, why direct action? 
why sit-ins, marches, and so forth. Isn't negotiation a better path? You're quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. President Kennedy was shot today just as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She cried, oh no. The motorcade sped on. Keep tuned to your NBC station for the later news. A television newsman, Al Luff, said that he looked up just after the shot was fired and saw a rifle being withdrawn from a fifth or sixth floor window of a nearby building. Now from Washington, government sources say that President Kennedy is dead. This is a different kind of war. It is guided by North Vietnam and it is spurred by Communist China. Its goal is to defeat American power. This happens every day. Also, incidentally, the kind of enemy which can carry heavy explosives to the very walls of American army barracks filled with American soldiers. These are the faces of the enemy, the leaders of the Viet Cong, the strategists of the hit-and-run jungle war which has kept the United States itself on the defensive. We're in Vietnam to fulfill one of the most solemn pledges of the American nation. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mrs. Betty Friedan is a most interesting woman. She is author of the best-selling The Feminine Mystique, a controversial analysis of the problems of today's woman. May I ask you this, is the American housewife unhappy with her lot? Oh, I wouldn't even answer a question in those terms because uh, you want me to say that all American housewives are unhappy. I wouldn't say no, that. No, I don't want you to say anything. I, I, uh... In my opinion, the other half of the, woman, of the revolution, the other half of women's liberation movement is the boys in my country and in yours wearing their hair long, you know. And those boys who are wearing their hair long are saying no to the masculine mystique. They are saying no to that brutal, sadistic, tight-lipped, crew-cut kill and, and, and napalm all the children in Vietnam and Cambodia to prove that I'm a man, you know, and be dominant and superior to everyone concerned. And he is the other half of this revolution. Additional forces will be needed later, and they will be sent as requested. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. The end of this sea of hostility that has been you know, preventing love in this country and that has been dehumanizing sex and making such loneliness and such alienation, frustration for everyone, that he will welcome a woman who can come out from behind that simpering, you know, mask of 
ruffles that hide so much impotent rage. And then you see we'll both be able to make love, not war. For years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. The New York Times reports growth of overt homosexuality in city provokes wide concern. The city's most sensitive secret, the presence of what is probably the greatest homosexual population in the world and its increasing openness, has become the subject of growing concern of psychiatrists, religious leaders, and police. The old idea, assiduously propagated by homosexuals, that homosexuality is an inborn, incurable disease, has been exploded by modern psychiatry in the opinion of many experts. It can be both prevented and cured, these experts say. The Times writer slants Randy Wicker's own statements to make homosexuality sound like a sickness from birth. This, on top of Dr. Irving Bieber's terribly inaccurate new book, Homosexuality, a Psychoanalytic Study, which examines homosexual men already in analytic treatment and blames their mothers for causing their supposed illness, it all makes Jack Nichols in D.C. furious. Newspapers and magazines and universities start perpetuating Dr. Bieber's stereotypes masked as research. And they'll continue to quote him through the 1980s. As homosexuals have finally begun to make progress to liberate queer people on the legal front, doctors claiming they're sick and preachers claiming they're sinners are rising up as formidable opponents to the homophile cause. Encouraged by his mentor, Frank Kameny, Jack Nichols writes a letter to their board of the Mattachine Society of Washington. The mental attitude of our own people towards themselves, that they are not well, that they are not whole, that they are less than healthy, is responsible for untold numbers of personal tragedies and warped lives. It is responsible for mental masochism and guilt-inspired punishment which homosexuals inflict upon themselves. He demands the MSW take action to change the medical understanding of homosexuality. Fighting the sickness theory should be one of their primary battles. By failing to take a definite stand, a strong stand, that is scientifically open, I believe that you will not only weaken the movement tenfold, but that you will fail in your duty to homosexuals who need more than anything else to see themselves in a better light. Can you tell Frank Kameny is his mentor? Kay Lehusen with Belitis and the latter also hears Frank speak and comes home excitedly to Barbara. You have to hear this guy. Barbara Giddings, the new editor of The Ladder, becomes close with Frank and Jack through Echo. Jack Nichols and Barbara Giddings are probably two of the most well-read activists in the movement. She's thrilled to finally hear someone else say that concerning themselves with educating heteros is a thing of the past, that they should follow the civil rights movement and fight for their legal rights. Barbara invites the MSW to get involved in the latter. Frank contributes articles about his thoughts on the scientific study of homosexuals. He wants no studies conducted until there is a study of what causes heterosexuality. But the latter readers don't necessarily listen to him. They launch a new survey of lesbians as their contributors debate the merits of the sickness theory and whether or not they should consider doctors the experts. We are the experts and the authorities. Kameny didn't have the stereotypical distant father and overbearing mother, and yet he's a homosexual. We are our own experts. He writes to Randy Wicker. 
For us, education is not really what we are seeking to do. As the Negro found out, simple presentation of truth does not eliminate prejudice. It never has. That is what education is. We are not an educational organization. We are a civil liberties organization. We too have been critical of our fellow homophiles and homophile organizations. We certainly were so by implication when we set our own course of evolution toward the civil liberties direction and away from New York's and San Francisco's education and research direction. The New York Times, December 27, 1963. There is now an organized homophile movement, a minority of militant homosexuals that is openly agitating for removal of legal, social, and cultural discriminations against sexual inverts. Come in. Mr. Call? Good evening. I'm Ted Micklevena. I'm the Reverend over at Glide Memorial. Oh, yes. Nice to meet you, Reverend. Have a seat. I'm told you're the man to see to learn about homosexuality. <laughs> I am certainly considered a professional, yes. <laughs> well, well, good. That's, that's what I need. Are you a homosexual, Reverend? Oh, no, no. Uh, I'm here representing the church's Young Adult Project. See, Mr. Call, my church is located right here in the Tenderloin. Young kids come looking for help. They need homes and food and affection, really, Mr. Call. These are the kids I see sleeping outside on the streets by our church. And I believe it's the church's responsibility to take care of them. These youth are homosexuals? They are, many of them. I know, historically, the church has not been very welcoming. No, they have not. But look at what Dr. King's doing. I could do more. My church should do more. You don't think that'll get your church into some trouble? Do you think talking to me will get you into trouble with your constituents? I think approval from clergy is exactly what my constituents need. Some of the militant guys in the movement are trying to get laws changed, but that isn't going to happen without minds being changed. I'm eager to change minds, Mr. Call. I just don't know where to begin. Well, we have an extensive library here in the Mattachine offices. I'd love to see it. But the best way to learn is firsthand. You ever been down to the Embarcadero at night? I have not. What happens then? Well, what's important is what happens when the cops show up. Uh, I see. Especially in the bars. That's when it makes the papers. I'm curious, are there private spaces for homosexuals to meet? Do they have to meet in public? Sure. There's private sex clubs, but you can't pay for that if you've got a wife at home. What do the police do when they show up at the Embarcadero and other meeting places? Cruising spots? Cruising spots. Do you want to take a walk, Reverend? Nothing has come to the Bureau's attention reflecting that the Civil Service has changed its policies with respect to homosexuals. Director Hoover sends the FBI liaison section to check with the Civil Service Commission to be sure they haven't started hiring queers for government jobs. CSC's Director of Policy and Standards responds, Although it is Commission policy to rule in favor of the individual if there is evidence of rehabilitation, in actual practice we rarely find evidence of rehabilitation. Really, we do not apply Commission policy at all. We apply our own individual emotional reactions and moral standards. 
our tendency to lean over backwards to rule against a homosexual is simply a manifestation of the revulsion which homosexuality inspires in the normal person. What it boils down to is that most men look upon homosexuality as something uniquely nasty, not just as a form of immorality. On Christmas Eve, Hoover's agent informs him that the Mattachine of Washington has been pressuring the Civil Service Commission to hire homosexuals, but the agent reassures the director that the CSC has not changed its basic policy excluding all homosexuals from government service. Hoover underlines this and writes, They should stick to it. Live at the Syriana Club on Connecticut Avenue, welcome to the Academy Awards of Washington, D.C. 200 people are expected to attend. Most men will be dressed as females. They'll be competing for awards such as Bitch of the Year, Hostess of the Year, Miss Washington, Best Dressed Homosexual, and others. They will be presented with engraved trophies by the Mattachine Society of Washington. How do we know about this spectacular event hosted by the MSW? The Washington Field Office special agent in charge sends these exact details to Director Hoover on April 9, 1964. Kameny's longtime nemesis, Officer Blick at the Metro PD Morals Department, has been advised. Remember, drag is illegal. Their informant inside the Mattachine says there are now three Hollywood houses housing homosexuals in the Capitol, and this informant says he won Gayest Guy in 1963. The FBI never finds out if these awards are real or if this is just a crank call. Obviously it's a crank. The Bureau receives another tip, this time from the Women of Cleveland chapter of Citizens for Decent Literature. Apparently, a national convention for lesbians is gathering at the Hotel New Yorker in Manhattan this year. The women of Cleveland probably read about this in the New York Times, which reported on this, the upcoming convention of the Daughters of Belitis. Director Hoover forwards the tip to the New York field office. Furnish this information to local authorities and follow this matter for possible bureau interest. And on June 8, 1964, FBI agents arrive at the Hotel New Yorker to interview management. The manager says New York DOB President Shirley Willer made the reservations. They say they asked her for a $400 deposit, but they haven't received it yet. They also asked for any credit rating on the organization. They were unable to give one, so the hotel canceled the DOB reservation. The agents encouraged that decision. From the daughter's point of view, the hotel is just creating delays. The DOB treasurer writes to the hotel, explaining the incorporated group from California has never had any trouble booking conventions before. Still, they get nothing from the hotel. They rebook at the Barbizon Plaza, but the Bureau doesn't know. Agents ask the first hotel where the lesbians went to rebook. They ask the New York City Convention Bureau, too, but nobody seems to know. The agents give up and file the documents away in the now enormous Sex Deviates file. Meanwhile, the New York Times covers a report from the New York Academy of Medicine about the homosexual activists and their push to be accepted as healthy individuals. The paper's headline announces, Deviates Proud, Doctors Report. The article ends by reminding readers, homosexuality is indeed an illness.
January, 1964. Randy Wicker smiles for the camera on New York City television, appearing on The Les Crane Show. Randy's TV appearances and media interviews pick up even more steam as he tours church groups and college courses to speak. The Les Crane Show is a talk show featuring controversial guests, such as Martin Luther King Jr., George Wallace, and Lee Harvey Oswald's mom, who argues with an attorney and the audience about whether or not her son killed the president. Randy tries to get the daughters of Belitis on Les Crane Show, too, but network executives think lesbians are too controversial. But lesbians finally find a way onto TV, just four months later. Frank, Randy, and Chicago DOB President Del Shearer appear on Norman Ross's TV show, Off the Cuff, in Chicago. And as our title, Off the Cuff, suggests, our guests engage in two hours of completely unrehearsed, completely spontaneous conversation. Shearer writes to the DOB publicity director. My friends have advised me against this possible exposure to ridicule and similar types of aggravation. I must admit that I have reached a point in my life when I must show my belief in people and in myself. I will not wear a mask. Okay, we'll be right back following this message. This week on my Patreon bonus episode... He's a desperately ill man, Mr. President. A gay scandal in LBJ's White House. In 1964, President Johnson's right-hand man was taken down in the Lavender Scare. What did Mattachine have to say about it? A spin-off episode happening alongside the events of next week's queer serial, you'll want to hear this story that shocked America. Subscribe to the bonus podcast at patreon.com slash queer serial. It's $3 a month, and not only has the bonus podcast, but also includes deeper dives into photos and archival research for queer serial, bonus episodes from all three seasons, plus the infamous crimes Boise sex panic series, and bonus bonus stuff like mugs, buttons, and Helen Branson's book Gay Bar, published by Mattachine. All this to support production of the podcast and some upcoming projects. There's a link to my Patreon in the episode notes. Uh, when questioned, and I will be questioned, I'm going to say that this is incredible for a man that I've known all these years, a devout Catholic, the father of six children, a happily married husband. It can only be a nervous breakdown not something for you to get involved in now. If we don't express some support to him, I think that we will lose the entire love and devotion of all the people uh, who have been with us. May 26, 1964, the League for Civil Education, LCE, or Elsie, is broke. There are thousands of dollars in debt, despite three mayoral candidates having purchased ads in Elsie's publication. 
That gay newspaper, the LCE News, started by Guy Strait and Jose Saria, has been financially mismanaged over the past few years. Saria resigned two years ago. Guy Strait's leadership style is kind of like Hal Calls. Members, just give me the money and I'll do the rest my way. Now the board sits in the home of Jim Foster, discussing what to do. They refuse to take on Guy's debt and instead vote to dissolve the organization. Elsie is dead. Then they all leave, ditch Guy, and walk across the street to board member Bill Plath's house. Bill May goes to use Plath's phone, and he calls his wife at home. We're thinking of forming a new organization and wondered if you were interested. I'm on my way. Nancy May comes right over. She knows her husband is gay, and since they're such close friends, she wants to get involved in the movement with him. Nancy and Bill left San Diego to escape the conservative atmosphere and the oppressive police. She walked out of her last job after being publicly reprimanded for hanging with homosexual friends. Now, Nancy sits down with the ten men to establish the Society for Individual Rights. Perhaps it's a nod to Henry Gerber's 1920s gay Chicago group, the Society for Human Rights. Maybe not. Their group's acronym spells out SIR, and SIR gets right to work. The organization speaks boldly about social action and promises that this group will not focus on personality conflicts inside the organization. They'll fight sexual puritanism and unite the gay community. They pick up the social activism of Elsie and publish their own newspaper, Vector. When their members are harassed, Sir fights City Hall and publishes legal advice in Vector. Their legal committee, two gay lawyers, Herb Donaldson and Evander Smith, they write up a pocket lawyer for gays to carry in case of arrest. They inform their members about their civil rights, and they're not as elitist as Mattachine about it. And Sir isn't scared of simultaneously being a social group. They sponsor theater productions, drag shows, and private dances, since same-sex dancing can still get people into trouble. These dances are a huge incentive to join Sir. They also have tennis groups, hiking trips, softball, card games, discussion groups, camping trips, and bowling. There's something to do with Sir almost every night. They start with one bowling lane on Monday nights, but eventually, in a few years, they'll be renting out the entire bowling alley, two nights a week. Sir joins forces with the Tavern Guild to host fundraisers in the bars, and the bars donate food. Gay customers pack the places as the gay organizations and businesses work together to help the community. Just one example, while people are there at the bar drinking, they can pick up a brochure about VD made by Sir and the Public Health Department and displayed by the bars. By getting their members to socialize and bond, Sir is more likely to get members involved politically. This makes them simultaneously a political action group and a social service agency for queers. Sir shifts the conversation from individual case-by-case work to collective social action. And they're inclusive of everyone. People of all genders join. Within the first year, Sir's membership of 300 people will pass every other gay and lesbian organization in town. On page one of the very first issue of Vector, President Bill Bairdemphil writes, Sir is an organization formed from within the community working for the community. While encouraging members to get out and vote, Nancy May's political committee for Sir puts out word that all 90,000 gay votes in San Francisco should unite. Bill writes to all members, We're in agreement. Even the Mattachine and the Citizens News, who were always miles apart, agree on this. The bars agree. The DOB agrees. 
Our straw poll has overwhelmingly shown that the whole gay community, when it becomes informed, agrees with these issues. Nancy May keeps hard at work to unite the gay vote. Hello? Good morning. I'm Reverend Ted Mickelvena from Glide Memorial. I just read your Vector publication, and I'm wondering if you might be able to answer a few questions for me. Meanwhile, the Tavern Guild meets with the Daughters of Belitis and Mattachine leaders to suggest a new campaign to change California's oppressive laws. They want to pass an anti-discrimination bill. State assembly members don't think they have a chance at passing such a bill without the support of someone like a church leader. Hmm, that'll be the day. The Tavern Guild has actually been contacted recently by a minister with some ideas about that. With the help of Dell and Phyllis, co-founders of Belitis, a meeting is organized between all of the San Francisco homophile leaders and Reverend Ted Mickelvena, along with ministers of local Methodist, Lutheran, United Church of Christ, and Episcopalian churches. May 31st. In a Mill Valley cabin, 14 miles outside the city, Del Martin, Phyllis Lyon, Cleo Bonner, Dubby Walker, and Billy Talmadge of DOB, Hal Call and Don Lucas of Mattachine, Guy Strait, formerly of Elsie, along with six other homophile activists from the Tavern Guild and Sir, meet with 15 clergymen and the Reverend Ted Mickelvena. It's a three-day retreat in the woods. Billy makes sure most people are brought there and dropped off so no one can leave. They came to convert us, and we came to convert them. On the first night, the ministers make dinner. Everyone is sitting in their little cliques of gay women, gay men, and ministers. It's clearly uncomfortable until the next day. They all get up early and sit down for a discussion. Ladies first? No, I'm last. Billy will later say she was ready to drop some real bombs. Where does it say in the Bible that homosexuality is wrong? Where does it say that love is wrong between two women? By the time lunch comes, everyone is talking. They all answer each other's questions and get on the same page. Soon they're strategizing how they can help churches understand these questions and help them help homosexuals. On Saturday night, the group of nearly 30 travels back into town for a bar tour in San Francisco. They start at the dumpier bars. They explain to the ministers that these are the bars we're forced to gather in. Because systems like religion keep homosexuals from being able to meet in more public, safer places. Most religious leaders uphold the values that encourage oppressive laws, and the homophiles want the ministers to see the vivid results. Would you want your son to go here? How do you know your son isn't going here? The ministers are clearly moved by these rundown bars. The group continues on their tour, hitting every gay bar they can. By the time they all return to the cabin, No one can sleep. Everyone is all over the house, talking excitedly. I see now that you can't understand heterosexuality without understanding homosexuality, and the other way around. Just part of the human condition. They all agree to co-sponsor a fundraising event for their new united organization, the Council on Religion and the Homosexual. In the upcoming December issue of the Mattachine Review, Hal Call writes, Never before have all six groups united in concert to promote a community project. In 
In June of 64, the Daughters of Belitis meet for their third annual convention, titled The Threshold of the Future. President Cleo Bonner, who drove 3,000 miles with Dell and Phil shortly after the retreat, she takes the podium to speak. As president of the Daughters of Belitis, I must say we've come a long way. We hold our convention every two years, and that in itself is a world-shaking event. It now stands for six years. We have our struggles and disappointments, our financial difficulties, and when I say financial difficulties, it's a nice way of saying how broke we usually are. (laughs) And when we feel despondent and sometimes say to ourselves, oh, who cares, what's the use, we will get a letter or some person will call, then we feel we should go on a little longer to help where we can and do what we can. I must say I'm very pleased to see all of you from the East, from the West, from Canada, and of course the New York people. To be up with us this morning and to come to our program, thank you. We are very happy to have you here in New York. We've been waiting to meet you for a long time. The convention guests are eager to get started after last night's cocktail party at the new DOB New York office. Co-author of the Kinsey Reports, Wardell Pomeroy, also speaks. So do Dr. Sylvia Fava and author Donald Webster Corey. Local radio personality Lee Steiner, along with a fashion editor and dietitian, host a flop of a panel titled Femininity, What Is It? They talk about fashion, dating, and fitness. The latter writer Nola later writes, At the end of the exercise session, Miss Kenyon explained that the exterior look of femininity is built on a narrow base, and the look of masculinity was broad-based. The biologically revolutionary statement went unchallenged. This rather surrealistic session gave a lift to things toward the close of the long afternoon. Anyone seeing the triumphantly hatted panelists sashaying off the platform would have had to agree there's nothing like a dame. The strangest postscript to the DOB convention was the most inaccurate and oblique press notice from Dorothy Kilgallen. Barbara Giddings also writes in the latter. She quotes Kilgallen's coverage of the convention. At a very proper East Side hotel, a conclave of ladies with crew cuts. Her comment was obviously not based on first-hand observation. If Miss Kilgallen looked for us on the East Side, that must be why she never showed up. Better luck next time. It's unclear whether or not the FBI found and attended the convention, but either way, perhaps the Cleveland women that tipped off the Bureau about the gathering in the first place saw the New York Times write-up of the event afterward. Homosexual women hear psychologist. The Daughters of Belitis, a national organization of homosexual women, heard two psychologists take issue yesterday with the prevailing medical view that homosexuality is a disease. About 100 persons, including representatives of male homosexual organizations, attended the opening session of a two-day biennial convention at the Barbizon Plaza Hotel. Thus, in a five-inch single-column item tucked away on a back page, the Times made a rare departure from its usual touting of the disease and or social menace theories. Meanwhile, in Chicago, another bar and another bathhouse are raided. Arrests, firings, and suicides follow. Chicago turns for the third and final time toward a new Mattachine chapter. But put a pin in that because homosexuals all over the country are learning of a safer place to go. In San Francisco, Life magazine photographers scout the gay bars. And the entire nation sees what the ministers saw, and more. 
a map of the underground queer community laid out before them. Life Reports, Homosexuality in America. A secret world grows open and bolder. Society is forced to look at it and try to understand it. Under the headline is a photo of a mural displayed at San Francisco gay bar The Toolbox. The magazine contacted Hal Call to find out where to shoot photos of homosexuals, so he sends them to this shadowy gay bar with the mural. The photographer is sure to only shoot the silhouettes of customers walking through the bar in front of the mural depicting men in leather jackets. It's likely unintentional, but this issue of life is basically a how-to guide and a map for any homosexual to buy in their local grocery store. So, for the final minutes of this episode, allow Life Magazine to show you around. These brawny young men in their leather caps, shirts, jackets, and pants are practicing homosexuals, men who turn to other men for affection and sexual satisfaction. They are part of what they call the gay world, which is actually a sad and often sordid world. On these pages, Life reports on homosexuality in America, on its locale and habits, and sums up what science knows and seeks to know about it. Homosexuality shears across the spectrum of American life, the professions, the arts, business, and labor. It always has. But today, especially in big cities, homosexuals are discarding their furtive ways and openly admitting, even flaunting, their deviation. Homosexuals have their own drinking places, their special assignation streets, even their own organizations. And for every obvious homosexual, there are probably nine nearly impossible to detect. This social disorder, which society tries to suppress, has forced itself into the public eye because it does present a problem, and parents are especially concerned. The myth and misconception with which homosexuality has so long been clothed must be cleared away, not to condone it, but to cope with it. Hal Call walks the life reporter around the gay bars, assuring men who are captured on camera that they're in the shadows and their faces will be airbrushed. The men stand, crowded in the smoky bar, Finally, it seems like the community has returned a bit to Henry Gerber's 1920s Berlin bar with a big old-fashioned iron stove. In New York City, swarms of young college-age homosexuals wearing tight pants, baggy sweaters, and sneakers cluster in a ragged phalanx along Greenwich Avenue in the village. By their numbers and by their casual attitude, they are saying that the street and the hour is theirs. Further uptown, in the block west of Times Square on 42nd Street, their tough-looking counterparts, dressed in dirty jackets and denims, loiter in front of the cheap movie theaters and sleazy bookstores. Few of the passers-by recognize them as male hustlers. By Chicago's Bug House Square, where Henry Gerber used to cruise, a small park near the city's fashionable Gold Coast on the north side, a suburban husband drives his car slowly down the street, searching for a contact with one of the homosexuals who drift around the square. A sergeant on Chicago's Vice Squad explains, These guys tell their wives they're just going to the corner for the evening paper. Why, they even come down here in their slippers. In Hollywood after the bars close for the night, Selma Avenue, which parallels Hollywood Boulevard, becomes a dark promenade for homosexuals. Two men approach one another tentatively, stop for a brief exchange of words, then walk away together. In the shadows that reach out beyond the streetlights, the vignette is repeated again and again until the last homosexual gives up for the night and goes home. Homosexuality, and the problem it poses, exists all over the U.S., but it is most evident in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New Orleans, and Miami. These large cities offer established homosexual societies to join, plenty of opportunity to meet other homosexuals on the streets, in bars or at parties in private homes, and, for those who seek it, 
complete anonymity. Here, tolerance, even acceptance by the straight world, is more prevalent than in smaller communities. California has a special place for them. In the city of San Francisco, which rates as the gay capital, there are more than 30 bars that cater exclusively to a homosexual clientele. The number of these bars changes from week to week as periodic police drives close them down, their life expectancy about 18 months. Some bars, like the Jumping Frog, are cruising pickup bars, filled with coatless young men in tight khaki pants. The Jumpin' Frog's business booms with gay tourists following this article's publication. They spend the evening standing around, there are a few seats in cruising bars, drinking inexpensive beer and waiting. As each new customer walks into the dimly lit room, he will lock eyes with a half dozen young men before reaching his place at the bar. Throughout the evening, there is a constant turnover of customers as contacts are made and two men slip out together, or individuals move onto other bars in search of luck. As closing time, 2 a.m., approaches, the atmosphere grows perceptibly more tense. It is the frantic hour, the now-or-never time for making a contact. It's not just a how-to guide on where to meet, but also a guide to cruising. In contrast to the cruising bars are the gay cocktail lounges, some of them just off the lobbies of the city's better hotels. They are frequented by local businessmen and out-of-town visitors, plus occasional innocent heterosexual travelers. A step or two down from the cocktail lounges are the gay bars where a single personality draws the customers. Until it closed recently, the backstage was one of the town's most popular because of Jose Saria, who entertained regularly on Sunday afternoons. Saria winds up his routine, an interpretation of Salome, standing in full drag, dressed and made up like a woman, and shouting to the audience, All right, you Nelly Queens, on your feet. United we stand, divided they'll catch us one by one. I am obviously delighted that he included that detail. As San Francisco's self-stylized Dowager Queen, Jose has achieved a certain notoriety. In 1961, he openly ran for city council supervisor and polled almost 6,000 votes. In San Francisco's Tenderloin off Market Street are the bottom-of-the-barrel bars where outcasts and misfits of all kinds hang out. Their bedraggled clientele includes dope pushers and users, male and female hustlers. Most of the customers have been busted, arrested, at least once. Here one finds the stereotype of effeminate males, the queens with orange coiffures, plucked eyebrows, silver nail polish, and lipstick. There may be a man or two in drag. Trans women. A few lesbians, some gay prostitutes, drunks, and cheap con men. On another far-out fringe of the gay world are the so-called S&M bars. S for sadism and M for masochism. One of the most dramatic examples is in the warehouse district of San Francisco. Outside the entrance stand a few brightly polished motorcycles, including an occasional lavender model. Inside the bar, the accent is on leather and sadistic symbolism. The walls are covered with murals of masculine-looking men in black leather jackets. A metal collage of motorcycle parts hangs on one wall. A cluster of tennis shoes, favorite footwear for many homosexuals with feminine traits, dangles from the ceiling. Behind it, a derisive sign reads, Down with Sneakers. This is the anti-feminine side of homosexuality, says Bill Ruqui, part owner of the bar. We throw out anybody who is too swishy. If one is going to be homosexual, why have anything to do with women of either sex? We don't go for the giddy kids. Metal is much in evidence in the room. Chains on the wall, the collage and bunches of keys hanging from the customer's leather belts. The effort of these homosexuals to appear manly is obsessive. In the rakish angle of the caps, in the thumbs boldly hooked in belts, Ruqui says. This is a place for men. A place without all those screaming faggots, fuzzy sweaters, and sneakers. Those guys, the ones you see in the other bars, are afraid of us. 
They're afraid to come in here because everything looks tough, but we're probably the most genteel bar in town. The hostility of the minority leather crowd toward the rest of the gay world is exceeded. The reporter then goes on to teach a history lesson on the movement. A recent phenomenon in American society, the homophile groups actively conduct programs to increase public understanding of homosexuality. One of the earliest and most active homophile clubs, the Mattachine Society, was started in 1950 as a secret organization by a group of... He explains the San Francisco Mattachine, the DC group, One Magazine. No mention of Belitis, as usual. Sprinkled throughout the piece are photos of actual homosexuals. A homosexual sits on a rail in Los Angeles' Pershing Square, where homosexuals new in town make contacts. That's right where Harry Hay cruised champ and got his first inklings of his idea to start the Mattachine. Two pages over, a photo of Hal Call at his printing press. Hal Call, president of San Francisco's Mattachine Society, a homosexual organization, gets press ready for the monthly Mattachine Review. Available to subscribers or on newsstands, the magazine carries articles on homosexuality and fiction on homosexual themes. How to find more information. In Los Angeles, Don Slater edits magazine One. Also pictured. For homosexuals, circulation 5,000. In a recent editorial, he wrote, It is the responsibility of every thinking homosexual to be enlightened. Flip a few pages, and he explains the detail of the laws that police use to arrest homosexuals. Life includes a picture of the backsides of three gentlemen walking away, two policemen on either side of a caught homosexual. Decoy officer and partner lead handcuffed homosexual away in Hollywood. When arrested for soliciting, he burst into tears. Inspector James Fisk says that 3,069 arrests for homosexual offenses made in Los Angeles last year represent merely a token number of those that should have been made. We're barely touching the surface of the problem, Fisk says. The pervert is no longer as secretive as he was. He's aggressive, and his aggressiveness is getting worse because of more homosexual activity. As part of its anti-homosexual drive, the Los Angeles Police Force has compiled an education pamphlet for law enforcement officers entitled Some Characteristics of the Homosexual. The strongly opinionated pamphlet includes the warning that what the homosexuals really want is a fruit world. In their unrelenting crackdown on homosexuals, the Los Angeles police use two approaches. One is an effort to deter homosexuality in public, and the other is an arrest effort. The first includes patrolling in uniform, restrooms, and other known loitering spaces, such as Selma Avenue. Then the police go the rounds of the gay bars and make their presence felt. To arrest homosexuals, the police have an undercover operation in which officers dressed to look like homosexuals, tight pants, sneakers, sweaters, or jackets, prowl the streets and bar. The officers are instructed never to make an overt advance. They can only provide an opportunity for the homosexual to proposition them. Arrests are made after the officer has received a specific proposition. In a typical arrest effort in Hollywood this spring, a plainclothes officer loitered under the streetlight at the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Stanley Avenue. Soon a car slowly turned the corner onto Stanley and the officer drifted into the darkness down the block. When the car pulled over to the curb, the officer, Jim, approached it. After a few minutes of idle talk, the driver established that his name was Jerry. He lived many blocks away, but Jim indicated that he himself had a place on Wilcox, actually the police station. Part of the conversation, which the officer hoped would enable him to make an arrest, went like this. Then, the reporter actually includes the real transcript of a cruising plainclothes cop 
luring a man in for arrest. The cop's cruising is so hilariously bad, I have to wonder if including this conversation was the reporter throwing shade at the police. This part is not a how-to guide. I could cut this from the episode for time, but it's just so much fun. And I'm voicing the gay guy being cruised by the cop. No surprise. What's on your mind after we get home? That's what I want to know. Well, what's on your mind? Well, I don't know. You don't? Well, that is to say, there isn't anything to drink at my place, you know. Well, I can always drink coffee. I don't drink anything stronger. Uh Uh-huh. Well, anything else? Anything else? I said, is there anything else? To drink? No. No? I was just wondering, maybe, what what else you had in mind, if, if anything. At this point, I don't care. Well, I don't exactly know how to take that. Well, well, how do you want it to go? Like I say, it's up to you, Jerry. Well, you call it, and we'll go from there. I'm your guest, self-invited. Well, uh, I know, but I wouldn't want to be a presumptive host. You might say, in others, a good host always looks out for the welfare of his guests. You understand? So I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Well, we can just let the chips fall where they may, or forget it. I always say, if you know what you want and aren't man enough to ask for it, then why the end of heck with it? You, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, there's no use wasting any more of your time or or mine, I guess, Jerry. Well, I don't know. It's up to you. You, you don't know? What's the matter? Are, are you afraid? Well, isn't everybody? I'm not afraid of you. I don't know you, and you don't know me. Well, that's true, but... Still in all, like I say, I'm not, although maybe I should be, I, I don't know. You, you're not a policeman, are you? No. Well, you could be. So could you. Well, that's true. I understand they got a whole lot of plain clothesmen they use, so I don't know what to think sometimes. But that's why you gotta be kind of careful. Uh-huh. It pays. You understand, of course. So, maybe we just better drop it at that. Oh? Well. I mean, we're... Both getting a little on the leery side. Yeah. Well, so long. I won't take any more of your time. The police officer had decided that the encounter was not going to reward him an arrest. Jerry drove away and the officer went back to work on the corner. Honestly, until Jerry said he wasn't a cop, I started to wonder if this story was just two undercover cops cruising each other. America reads this entire interaction, the whole strategy of the police, and they learn the cities and bars homosexuals should go to, and it's all complete with photos. Jesus Christ, Hal, we shouldn't have done that. Now the ABC is going to close my bar. Don't you worry. You've got a black and white double-page ad in Life magazine. You couldn't have bought that for $75,000. Unfortunately, from a medical perspective... The life journalists draw from Dr. Irving Bieber's incorrect theories. In one of the journalist's notes, there are also women homosexuals, of course, but the number is much smaller. But overall, most of the information in this extensive article is correct. Another huge migration of gays to San Francisco follows. Do the homosexuals, like the communists, intend to bury us? Yes, indeed, suggested a startling front-page story in the New York Times and other newspapers last month. A committee of the highly respected New York Academy of Medicine had come to the conclusion that American homosexuals want far more than to be merely tolerated 
and even more than to be ungrudgingly accepted. Their true goal, said an Academy report, is to convince the world that homosexuality is a desirable, noble, preferable way of life. Educations and enlightenment are the Mattachine Society's goals, but shock techniques are not its way. Problems disappear through evolution. They are only aggravated by revolution. Education of the public. That's the goal of the Mattachines of San Francisco and New York. Social activities leading to united voting. That's the goal of SIR. Many San Francisco groups work together on the Council for Religion and the Homosexual to begin their goal, changing churches and educating ministers. Mattachine of Washington, D.C. focuses on civil rights. The Daughters of Miletus, still a national organization, focus on social services. But the latter editors plan to radicalize their magazine. Most homophile groups across the country disagree on how to liberate the queer community. And they all take different tacks. It's divisive, but a strategy, however unintentional. Activists simultaneously gearing up for battle on every front. By 1964, the fight for liberation is stronger than ever. The revealing issue of Life magazine hits newsstands on June 26, 1964, almost five years to the day before queers stop trying to educate and enlighten and convince and start throwing bricks. And in six months... Nancy! Nancy May! You can't take that woman! You're a religious woman, aren't you? Officer, I thought we had a deal. We're here for the inspection. Am I under arrest? You can't take that woman! Next week, on episode two, The Raid on California Hall. Thanks so much for joining me for the final season. If you're enjoying Queer Serial, please give me a quick little five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast reach new listeners who are looking to learn about queer history. And thanks to all the voice actors who recorded with me over Zoom during the pandemic. Some of the audio quality might vary over this season, but voice actors have always read the real words and writing of the activists in this history on this podcast. So I'm very grateful to everyone who is willing to keep contributing to the show. Special thanks to many people who helped make this season happen. Albert Williams and Marissa Barbara Clayton for their support. Matthew Reamer for help with a few deep cut queer history questions. You can follow him on Instagram at LGBT underscore history. And Ryan Teal for designing the beautiful new artwork for the podcast. I did a big post on my Instagram all about the inspiration we drew from to make that art. Speaking of which, you can follow me at Queer Serial on Instagram to see the real events and people from every episode. If you're not following me on Instagram, in the words of Miss Paul, you're only getting half the story. Thank you to some major donors this season. There are so many people to thank in these credits. Historian Will Roscoe, thank you. Dear Judy Connor, good, thank you. Jesse Nasta, Brian Rowe, Andrew Casey, thank you. Thank you all for your donations to support the podcast production. If you want to support the show, join my Patreon at patreon.com slash queercereal for fun rewards and the bonus podcast, or head over to queercereal.com slash donate. 
I am also deeply indebted to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. You can check out QueerSerial.com for more resources for the podcast. All the links to all these things and more are in the episode notes right here in your podcast app. Teachers, teachers of any kind, please DM me on any social media or email me at QueerSerial at gmail.com if you'd like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors. The part of Nancy May and the latter writer Nola were performed by Courtney Tesh, Hal Call by returning star Dominic Caruso, Del Martin by returning star Salvio Gatto, Phyllis Lyon by Jane Serenska, reporter Ken Travis by Garrett Williams, Echo audience member by Marissa Clayton, New York daughter and Billy Talmadge by Jen Freitag, Chicago daughter Del Shearer by Emily Baytech, Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle, Shirley Willer by Heidi Dove, Pearl Hart and Cleo Bonner by Tandria Young, Frank Kameny by my dearest darling Albert Williams, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller, New York Times reporter by Adrian Barker, Jack Nichols by Nick Large, Kay Lehusen by Katie Spleet, Reverend Ted Mickelvena was performed by me, FBI agent by Mike Lysak, Director Hoover and the Life Magazine reporter were performed by John Roth, a star in literally every episode of Queer Serial. In contrast to the cruising gay bars are the gay cocktown. Cocktown? <laughs> cocktown, <laughs> cocktown <loud>. baby! <laughs> and I'm the mayor. <laughs> Bill May by Matthew Ryle, Beer, Bill Beardemphil, Bill Beardemphil, Bill, Bill Beardemphil, I can never say his name, Bill from Sir by Will Roscoe, Tavern Guild bartender by Dan Unser, and the Toolbox bar owner was performed by Brian Rowe. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thanks so much for listening. I'm very excited about this season. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Devlin Camp. See you again next week. jump back um just yeah. to get his name right jose saria 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 about that <laughs> can we uh salome 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 about that uh <laughs>